Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, it's our first podcast of the new year. So first things first, Happy New Year. And there has already been a lot of news since the start of 2023. So just this week, we learned that Quinn Redeker, who played Daze's Alex Marshall and Young and Restless's Rex Sterling, passed away at the end of 2022. Now, I was a big fan of Quinn's on Days. Alex was such a great character and interacted so well with Tony and Anna, not to mention Calliope. You know, I was all in on those characters in the 80s. And we have a tribute to the actor in an upcoming issue. And the stories that were shared by his former co-stars were just so sweet. Um, it's definitely a must read. Now, in happier news, Shamar Moore, who played Young and Restless's Malcolm, has announced that he and his girlfriend, Jezeray, are expecting a child, his first. It's a girl who they plan to name Frankie, and she's coming around February 8th. Now, in a fun twist, because I am a big SWAT fan, which he is the star of, uh, his character there, Hondo, is also becoming a first-time dad. Well, I can't imagine a more wonderful case of life imitating art. Uh, there's also a lot of big news coming out of GH. Uh, so hot on the heels of the departure of Kelly Tebot as Brit, another acid-tongued fan fave will be returning. Uh, in April, Jane Elliott is coming back to Port Charles as Tracy. She retired as a full-time cast member in 2017 and has returned for visits since then, but I am told that this stint is more long-term, which is such great news viewers. The Nurses Ball will also be returning in April. It is certainly no coincidence that timing because GH is marking its 60th anniversary on April 1st. And so a splashy celebration like the Nurses Ball certainly seems appropriate. And in the lead up to that celebration, the show will also air a special episode paying tribute to the late Sonia Eddy, who played Epiphany starting in 2006. That's going to be so lovely to do that for Sonia. You know, in our new issue, we also have quotes from GH alum Tony Geary, who played Luke. He talks about her and shares his feelings about her passing. But that is a lot of exciting news right there. I love Tracy, and I think she brings something nobody else does to the show. Uh, now, another alum returning to daytime is Rodney Van Johnson, who was T.C. Russell on Passions and is playing Sheila's lawyer on Bold and Beautiful. 
So we spoke to Rodney for an interview in our new issue, and he was so enthusiastic about his soap return. He tells us he got a chance to actually pop in on old pal James Hyde, who played Sam on Passions and is now Jeremy on Y&R. You know, as you know, Y&R and B&B share a studio, so Rodney tracked him down and went to James to say hello, which I just think is so cute. Um, and Rodney also has a connection to Avery Pohl, who plays GH's Esme. Rodney and her father have been besties for years. Right. And Avery, you know, told us when she was a guest on the podcast about how he helped her prepare for her GH audition, which I, I just think that's so cool. Uh, also on the GH front, the show is poised to finally blow the secret that Nina is Willow's mother all the way up. So Carly is forced to come clean to Nina after finding out that Willow has leukemia and needs a bone marrow donor. Needless to say, Nina is not going to take kindly to finding out that Carly has known this truth for months. I had a really great talk with Cynthia Watros, Nina, for a preview of all of this in the new issue. And I can tell you with certainty that there are still a whole lot of twists and turns for this story to take in the near future. Well, I will certainly be tuning in. I've been waiting for quite a while for this. Now, our guest today has a long history in daytime, but is back after a brief break. It's Joe Lando, who's reprising the role of B&B's Judge McMullen, but famously got his start as One Life to Live's Jake. So let's check in with him and get a big old catch up. Hi, Joe. Hello. Good morning, ladies. Thanks so much for joining us. We are so excited to talk to you. I'm. It's a pleasure to speak with you. This is my first podcast, so I'm a little nervous, but at the same time, so excited. <laughs> we'll be gentle. We will Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, we'll start with the softball. You were born in Prairie View, Illinois, which is not a showbiz town, I imagine. So did you grow up wanting to be an actor? Yes, I did. And I always kept it a, a secret because growing up in my family in the area that I was outside of Chicago, nobody talked about being an actor. And a lot of my contemporaries, my friends, when I was like four or five, they didn't they didn't know movies. They didn't, they didn't even know who Elvis Presley was. I remember talking about that with little kids. I'm thinking, why am I so aware of this stuff? And they aren't. But it was always in the back of my mind. And my father loved movies, you know, old black and white movies with with uh, Humphrey Bogart and all the, you know, Spencer Tracy and all those movies. So I grew up with that. And I remember my dad took me to Goldfinger, James Bond. I've loved James Bond movies since I was a little kid. And I still do. And I just remember sitting there thinking, I, I'd love to do this. This is kind of cool. But I didn't really understand that it wasn't real. I, but I was just thinking, I, I really love sitting in this dark room watching the screen. It's just magic. And and I think it's the way most actors feel. A lot of people just in general feel that way when they're inside of a theater. And, and so um, a few years later, we went to California and visited Universal Studios. And I must have been about seven at that time, eight and my dad picked up this big rock and handed it to me. And I realized it's fake. And then we saw a movie star of some sort. And I'm like, oh, this is all just like a play. It's pretend and you can, this is how it happens. And it just all came to me like one day that I want to be an actor. And this is a process. This is a job. People, it's not like happening for real right now. And as soon as I kind of, kind of was able to comprehend that, then the next big memory is, seeing the godfather and in the theater and just going wow this is this is like the best level of that you know filmmaking and acting and um then i became a huge marlon brando fan and you know things just went from there and in my high school in prairie view illinois adley stevenson high school 
I was a freshman and, and just fell in love with a junior. Um, she was an actress in a play. And I remember running to go see the play and then at school and then seeing her in the talent show. And I was so smitten with her. And her name is Allison LaPlaca. And it was a school of about 600 people in Prairie View, Illinois. And I lived vicariously through Allison. I started dating. I was a freshman dating a junior. I can't tell you the fights I had to go through. <laughs> and in my high school, when you went upstairs to the upperclassmen's hallway and looked for your girlfriend, it was like death. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was I was determined, you know, and it was that kind of blind determination that was able to allow me to have this profession because I just believed I could do just about anything. And um, and so I never told Allison that I wanted to act, but I always loved watching her. And then she graduated and went on to college and I'd see her in plays. And then I came out to California when I was 18 because college just wasn't ready for me. And <laughs> and um then Allison followed me out and she, her career took off. She was in um, the Jackie Thomas show. She was on the John Larroquette show for years. And I actually did a, a John Larroquette show with Allison playing her boyfriend from high school, blah, 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 blah. And it was crazy because all our, our friends and back in Stevenson high school were like, how did you two guys do this? <laughs> you know, how does this happen? And, um, and that was the beginning, you know, and Allison was a big part of, allowing me to live in this world without telling anybody. And it was just, and I kept it a secret. I moved out to California to become a stuntman and then to become an actor because when I watched the Johnny Carson show with my parents, Burt Reynolds would come on. And Burt Reynolds then became like my hero because he was a guy who did stunts. He was like a really manly man. He made all these fun movies. And I found out that he started as a stuntman and then worked his way into the system. And I figured, how does a boy from Chicago who has nobody in the acting world in his family do this? And um, I was, like I said, stubborn enough, ignorant enough, <laughs> innocent enough to not know what I was going up against. And um, slowly worked my way into the business. When I came to California in 1980, at 18, the whole town was shut down for a strike, an actor strike and then a writer strike. And I happened to get a job because when you grow up in Chicago, you know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. And so when I came out to California, I knew somebody who knew somebody who got me a job working in a restaurant. And that restaurant was called Santo Pietro's up in Bel Air, California, where all these actors would come in constantly because they were out of work. And I saw everybody at this place, everybody. And um, I ended up getting a job through someone working on a catering truck that catered motion pictures. And that was kind of a new business where there were runaway films I called movies that weren't being made in town here. And so they needed to take chefs and the cooking and the group, the whole crew, they needed to take to a different place like Texas. And they didn't have the infrastructure there yet. So they'd take the caterers. And so I worked on movies like Silkwood, The Man Who Loved Women, which was a Burton Reynolds movie. Wow. And a bunch of other things. At 19, 19, 20, and I think up until about, no, I was 21 too. Yeah. yeah. So for three years, I did that. And I sat oh, on wait. the set. I'm sorry. Did, what was it like to be on a movie set that Burt Reynolds was on after he was your hero? Oh, I was, and Kim Basinger was like starting. And I remember running to her one day. She was coming out of the honey wagon, which is the bathroom area. And, stuff, and I, she just stopped me in my tracks. I was like the most gorgeous woman I'd ever seen. And, you know, and Burt Reynolds, too. And I got his autograph and I was just so excited. I mean, it was just a surreal experience. 
And uh, we we worked at the ranch that they used on Dallas. You know, that big ranch they'd show at the beginning ah. of the show. We shot at that ranch for this movie. And I was feeding 700 people that day, my boss and I. And I just remember it was it was an incredible experience. And then working on like um, uh, Silkwood that had Meryl Streep in it, right? Yeah. Sitting in a gas station, serving her this mushroom soup that I just made, then sitting down with her and talking and her asking me about the soup and how I made it. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you don't realize I'm just in awe of this woman. I mean, uh, wow. I, I just couldn't believe that I was talking to Meryl Streep. And I had a lot of these really neat experiences. Um, I think about it. And it's just very fortunate. I've had an interesting life and career since I left home at 18 to do this and uh, had so many things stacked against me, but, you know, just kept just kept swinging and eventually slowly got into the business. Uh, well, I, I have a, a couple of other uh, shoulder yeah, rubbing questions to ask you about, Joe. One mm -hmm. is uh, what I understand is that you're working in these like incredibly ritzy restaurants. You mentioned uh, how mm -hmm. you saw everyone. Warren Beatty was coming in. Jack Nicholson yeah. was coming in. And yes. at one point you landed an agent because the, the story you were told was that it was because you looked like Mel Gibson. Can you tell us the story of sitting on a couch at a party with Mel Gibson, Richard Gere and Kevin Costner? Yes. Well, it started with, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out how am I going to get through this this door that seems to be slamming in my face everywhere I turn and finding out in order to have a part in a movie, you've had to have a part in a movie because that's how you have to join SAG, you know? So it, it seemed like this uh, conundrum I couldn't get through. And long story short, we let a, my roommate and I let a fellow uh, waiter who worked at our restaurant sleep on our couch. He was down and out, he needed blah, blah, blah. And long story short, he ended up running out knowing us a bunch of money. And I was in a position where I could float this guy a thousand dollars. And so I was very upset. So my roommate and I kind of put out the word, if this, this character shows his face with anybody we know, that's going to be it. And so the guy literally stayed underground for like three months. And then one day uh, he surfaced and called my apartment and said he had set up a meeting with me and Mel Gibson's agent, Ed Lamato, who was a god among agents here in California. So um, I went in and met at William Morris. It was this building that was not just down the street from my house and it was very impressive, a dark glass building. And I always said to myself, someday I'm going to get in there. Like within a year, I'm sitting on the couch waiting in the office downstairs for her to go up and meet Mel Gibson's agent, which I do. And I go into this room. There's this man smoking a cigarette, with two phones on his head. And um and I sit down and he pushes his intercom and says, hold my calls for five minutes or whatever. I'm going to talk to this guy. And he asked me, what are you doing here? And I said, well, some people tell me I look like Mel Gibson. And I was really trying to look like Mel Gibson, too, because it was like I was working in a restaurant where people saw me constantly and girls would come up and go, you look like Mel Gibson. I say, who? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. That's trying so hard to look like him. And um, uh -huh. And so this agent looks at me and goes, no, I don't really see it, but do you want to act? And I said, that's what I came here for. Blah, 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 blah. He pushes a button, gets this famous photographer to take my headshots. And then he asked me if I had any acting lessons. And I said, no, pushes another button, gets Vincent Chase on the phone. And so before I know it, I have headshots lined up 
and and an acting studio to go and meet to see if the guy you know accept me into class and they have no way to pay for these things you know i'm thinking what am i going to do you know and then the, this guy goes ed goes don't worry we'll take care of it blah 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 and i'm like well i'm i'm 19 20 but i'm not done <laughs> there's no free lunch <laughs> in this town but um and there wasn't and i was with william morris for a very short period of time didn't get any work because nobody knew me but that's how i broke into the field and um, Ed, uh, Ed eventually said, you know, good luck to you. And I went on my way and I started working at, at Vincent Chase Workshop, um, who Vincent Chase that was on Entourage, that character was named yeah. after, um, this acting coach. And, and while I was there, I lost my job working in a restaurant and I couldn't afford my classes and William Morris wasn't taking care of it anymore. So I lived at the workshop. I slept there at night. I got up before classes started. I had to clean the thing, you know, the toilets, everything. But I had someplace to live rent-free. And I went to a class every day. And then I got a job back at a restaurant. So I worked six nights a week in a restaurant and studied seven days a week if I could. You know, if there was a class on Sunday, I'd go. But there usually wasn't. But literally slept in a really seedy neighborhood in Hollywood. I could hear the prostitutes arguing outside on the street every night and people pounding on the door trying to get in. But it was quite an adventure and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I literally got into the business through a waiter who owed me money, who introduced me <laughs> to Ed, who I found Vince with. And and that was the beginning, you know? And, uh, and it took a while. I mean, I remember... I didn't want to go out on auditions until I had at least a year or so under my belt, you know, um, working in class. And uh, I remember my first audition was with John Travolta for a movie with Jamie Lee Curtis called Perfect. And um, I'm reading with John Travolta in this room where I shouldn't be for any reason, you know, and um, they were like, oh, that's great. And they offered me a part to be like one of the male strippers in the thing. And that was just that's not where I wanted to go with my career. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, thank you. But you know, no, thank you. Um, and then my next job was working as a longshore patrolman, I think in Star Trek four, which I still get residual checks for Star Trek four. You know, it was my first big break, really. But how'd you wind up actually meeting Mel Gibson and sitting on a couch? Oh, I'm sorry. So I went to that party at Ed's house and there was, uh, I really went to go see uh, Barbara Carrera. I heard she was going to be there at the house that night. And and I was in love with her. And I went to see Barbara Carrera and there's Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson and I started talking. Then I sat down. There was this big round mirrored table um, in the living room. And I sat next to him. We're drinking a beer and just started chatting. He was doing the movie Mrs. Sofal at the time. Um, and just started talking about my where I came from. And he said his dad, his, he said he referred to him as his old man had lived in Chicago and also had been a cook. And, you know, I said, that's what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people, he said, well, what are you doing here? You're a civilian. And I said, well, a lot of people said, I look like you. And that's how I met Ed. And, and we both kind of leaned forward in the table and looked like that. And you went, kind of, nah. But anyway, but even my mother thought we looked like each other. And then in walked this guy who I'd just seen like the week before riding his bicycle on Mulholland. And I was into riding bikes too. So I started talking to him as Kevin Costner. He was doing a movie called American Flyer. And he, he was pr pretty much an unknown at the time. Then walked in this woman that Ed kept telling me was gonna be a big star. And I was like, I guess you'd know. It was Michelle Pfeiffer. So I got to meet Michelle Pfeiffer. 
And um, there was Mark Lee. There was, oh, God, there was so many people there. I was just like, oh. And then Barbara Carrera showed up and, you know, <laughs> um, and who else was there? I said, Kevin Costner, Mel Gibson. Richard, Richard Gere. Oh, Richard Gere. Yeah, Richard Gere. Because of my association with, with Ed, I met Richard there. And then Richard um, introduced me to a famous photographer called uh, Herb Ritz. And oh, Herb yeah. Ritz took my second <laughs> yeah. shot. And I went to um, Acapulco and did a, a like 20 page layout in Vogue magazine um she was just like what and all of a sudden I'm these famous models and I'm in Acapulco and you know Puerto Vallarta I mean and she did this thing and it just just took off from there it was just crazy right after that I went in on an audition for a, a soap opera part because at the time all my friends and classmates were taking off and doing big movies Michael Bean was in my acting class he did Terminator and then um, a load of people, but everybody else started getting movie roles and I wasn't getting anything. So I said, you know, I've got to start from the bottom here and be realistic. And I have to really hone my craft. And I wanted to do theater, but all of a sudden I had this audition for a soap in New York and went in on it. And I remember going to the casting call and right before I walked in the room, I heard a bunch of laughter and this guy walks out. It's John Stewart, who wasn't a big star at the time in any capacity, but he was a local comedian who I'd seen. I knew who he was and he's leaving this room and everyone's laughing and, and the casting agent's like, oh, come on in, Joe. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm walking into this room that oh, this is going to be tough. And um, they were like, oh, you know who that is? I said, that's John Stewart. And she says, oh, yeah, he's so funny. I love him. I was like, is he up for this part? Because and say, no, 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 no. He's in for something else. Don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, God. And I felt so much better. And I really wanted to get this part. So I started the audition. I'm about halfway through it. And the casting agent says, stop. And I thought, oh, great. She goes, you're going to New York. Don't worry. You're going to go for the screen test. I just want to talk about you, Joe. And so he talked about me, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember walking out of there, my feet not touching the ground. And and going home and two days later, I left for New York and did my screen test with Jessica Tuck and the other guys that were there. I can't remember who, but um, again, I didn't think it went very well. And they gave me per diem while I was there and they put me up in a very nice hotel. And I remember I took the bus from the airport in instead of a cab to save the money. And then I kept my per diem and ate like off one of those hot dog wagons <laughs> and um, dirty dogs, you know, <laughs> from the street. Yep. And um, and I went home. And when I got home, you know, a couple of days later, I found out I had the part and I had to quickly pack up my life and leave and move to to New York. And I'd been 10 years. I, I had bumped around in California. I was now, I went to California at 18 to become an actor and my meteoric rise, 10 years later, I get my first big part, <laughs> I'm 28. And I, I went to New York and that's where things really, that's where the fun began. <laughs> well, before we get into that, Mara did find a very fun little story that you had told. Um, it happened in 1984, you're spinning pizzas and you complimented a waiter named Jack on his singing voice. Do you yes. remember Jack's last name? And what was that? Jack story? Wagner. <laughs> I just saw him in Canada. We both are working up in Vancouver. And um, I was like, Jack, because we hadn't seen each other for like 20 years, because I bumped into him on a plane one time. And um, yeah, it was Jack Wagner, an, a man named Roger Lodge. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a sportscaster, comedian, blah, blah, blah. Roger Lodge. Um, Mariska Haggerty. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of her? Targeting, yes. <laughs> I mean, she was also a waitress there. I was the cook, and these guys were all waiters and waitresses. 
And um, Rob Lowe's wife, Cheryl Burkoff, worked there. Um, it's a few other people right now that's slipping my mind. But anyway, yeah, Jack Wagner, I couldn't believe him. He was one of those guys who just took off. You know, one day he's waiting in tables in the restaurant, and then he's on American Bandstand singing a song. He's on General Hospital playing, I think, Frisco. Yep. You know, and, and then everything after that, um, he was on Melrose Place. I did Melrose Place. So we were just recently talking about everything that went on. But yeah, he was a nice guy. We had a good time. Um, but fine. I had no idea that, you know, he was an actor and singer other than it was like, yeah, nice voice, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you also have one of the coolest pre One Life to Live credits that we have to talk about, which is your pizza spinning oh. gets you involved uh, in a little bit of a tiny movie with Kevin Klein and River Phoenix and Tracy Ullman. So tell us about that. Yes, I was working in uh, the restaurant Vittorio's. And someone came in one night and talked to my boss about hiring somebody to be um, to teach these actors how to work in a kitchen. And I remember it was in the middle of a rush and it was a very popular restaurant, same restaurant I met my wife in, who was the cashier at the time. Um, and anyway, this guy comes up to me because my boss is a Sicilian man, Giovanni Mazzola. I mean, hardcore, whoa, what do you do? And uh, this guy comes up and says, hey, can you can I hire someone here to teach me how to spin pizzas and blah, blah, blah. And my boss is like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I, I, I need to hire someone to teach these actors. And he goes, just go talk to him. And it was an open kitchen. <laughs> so this man walks over to me in the middle of a rush. I'm sweating bullets and I've got all this stuff on my head thinking of what I have to do. According. And this guy hands me his card and starts telling me, I need you to teach. Can you spin pizzas? And I said, yeah, I go. And can you show me? And I, I spun a rag really quickly. And I'm thinking this guy's wasting my time. And Giovanni just keeps looking at me, giving me the nod, like, go ahead, keep talking to him. So <laughs> talked to him for a little bit longer. He gives me his card and says, Can you come by tomorrow and, and show my actors how to spin a pizza? And I said, Do I have to bring dough? What do I do? And he goes, No, no, we'll have all that handled. I said, Okay, but and I thought, and I went, I want a hundred dollars to come down tomorrow before I have to come to work. I said, I have class tomorrow, acting class, but I'll skip that if you give me a hundred dollars to come down and talk to these guys. Tough negotiation there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, I know. There. I was quite proud of myself because I was only making like $40 a night working at the restaurant. Right. So I thought, wow, what a windfall. Tomorrow I'm gonna have 140 bucks in my pocket. So I went to the, uh, no, I was, I went for a little hike that morning. I came home. I was going to go to this thing before work. Then I get a call going, uh, you don't have to come in. We found somebody else, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, all right. I hung up the phone and I was like, you know, bring it you kind of a thing. And what about my business? And a little bit later, the phone rang again, like in an hour and a half or so. It was just after lunch and I was getting really ready to leave. And they go, can you please come down right now? I go, what happened? He goes, well, the the man that we had to, to show them how to spin pizzas, he got a little nervous and he went out at lunch and got drunk. And 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 I go, who would make this man so nervous he had to go out and get drunk? He goes, well, the actors are Kevin Klein. And at the whole time, time I'm thinking this is a little shady. I'm like, they're coming, having me come in for a porno or something, <laughs> a snuff film. I just didn't believe it was on, on, on the up and up. But they said, well, it's Kevin Klein and Tracy Ullman and River Phoenix. And when they got to William Hurt, I just said, I'll be there. And I was like, I'll be there. Where am I going? And I rushed down there. I called my boss. I said, I'm going to be a little late for work, blah, 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 blah. He was like, you can be click. And so I went and I couldn't believe Kevin Klein sitting there and all these people in a room and they present me with this tray of dough and I touch it. And they'd gotten from a, uh, a pizza hut across the street. 
and the dough they stuck in a freezer. So it was really hard. It was like, it wasn't frozen, but it was pretty hard dough. And I thought this is going to work to my advantage, actually, because if you don't know what you're doing or anything about this, the dough is not going to stretch as easy. And what I really wanted was already thinking was job security because they had said, you can come here a few <laughs> times and teach the guys. And I'm like, okay. And as I got the dough ready, you know, you have to kind of flatten it out and you start to stretch it. And I could feel, oh, this is going to be great. I start to spin it. And I literally spun this pizza bigger than a tabletop, like this big. And Kevin Klein's there and they're all going, <laughs> and, up. and I toss the pizza to Kevin when I know it's the last second where he can't catch it. And when I toss it to him, his hand goes right through it. He's like, oh, do it again. So I get another boom, 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 boom. I'm like, yes, yes, this is working out to my advantage. I spin the pizza. I get it a little further along, not quite as big as the other one. I toss it to Kevin. He goes around a couple times. Boom, his hand goes through it. But Kevin Klein is an actor who loves learning the business of what his characters do. If they juggle, if they play piano, if they spin a pizza, he's like an athlete. He wants to learn this. And I could see it in right away. He was like, I need to learn how to do this. And they said at the end of that meeting, I threw it to Pete. I threw it to River. He failed completely. Tracy didn't get it at all because she had nails. But Kevin was the one who was supposed to learn how to spin the pizzas anyway. So I went home that day knowing that they had hired me for six weeks to go on location in in a, we were in Tacoma, Washington. And I was able to help design the restaurant. You know, I sat and talked with the, the um, set decorator. And I remember saying, you need a picture of Frank Sinatra, of course. <laughs> and I said, and the dollar bills written, with the notes written on them. And they're like, yeah, 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 I had the dollar bills, but I didn't think of the Frank Sinatra picture. And I said, and a picture of the Last Supper. Got to be someplace in this Italian restaurant. And they're like, great. And if you see the movie over, the camera kind of starts on Frank Sinatra and pans down and shows all that stuff. And there was even a time when I'm sitting next to, uh, to Lawrence Kasdan, who's the director. Um, and... He's like, well, what would they do here, Joe? And I go, well, they do blah, 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 blah. And we had a bunch of rehearsals, which are really neat. All the actors in the, that were in the movie, Joan Plowright, um, you know, Kevin Klein, Tracy, River. Well, everybody that was there had to come in. Keanu Reeves um, and William Hurt were playing brothers in the movie. And everybody would come in for a rehearsal where you just stayed in character. And they opened up the doors to this restaurant that it looked like a real restaurant. It was an open office that they had converted into the set. And they opened the doors and people were walking by, just normal people on the street thinking, this is a restaurant that's open. It's busy. Look at all the people in there. <laughs> and I'm back there making pizzas as fast as I can in another room with a real oven. They have the fake oven that's not hooked up. And all the actors sitting around being in character. And so people were coming in and ordering pizzas and I was making them and Kevin was selling them. And he said, no, 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 it's free today. And they were like, what? what's going on here? You know, and then people started going, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> but it was a really neat. We did this three times uh, where we opened the restaurant just like it was a real place and everybody would stay in character and I was invisible. You know, they weren't supposed to see me as I moved around and did stuff. And um, but, uh I just spent all that time up there. Heather Graham, that was another person, and became really good friends. And just yesterday, I was in my office cleaning out a, a cabinet, and this envelope fell open, and all these pictures that you just brought up this movie, I Love You to Death, uh, from the set I have. And I wish I was in the room. I could show you some of them. But yeah, I hung out with River, and he became a really good friend, and Keanu, and uh, six weeks up there working on this movie. And what an incredible experience. And I never told anybody the whole time I wanted to be an actor that I was studying. 
I just did my job that I was supposed to do. Um, and when, once the film was finished, uh, I told Kevin and River and those guys, and they were like, and the whole time you didn't say anything. I said, I know how actors are. They all go, oh, look at I'm an actor, blah, blah, blah. And I was so intimidated, intimidated too by those guys. I was just like, I'm going to be quiet, do my job. But um, everybody kind of liked me, and, and that helped out. And when they came back to town and they had to do pickup shots, they had me come in and do more stuff. And uh, I suggested this one scene. Kevin Klein's character is a, um, a cheating husband. It's based on a true story. And he has a scene where he's looking at Heather Graham. And when you take the dough out and they're on trays, and you, before you put it away and wrap it up, you have to oil the dough. And so I said to Lawrence Kasdan, I said, I can't help but think when I'm oiling the dough and putting these trays away every time I do it, the, the, the mounds of dough look a lot like women's breasts. <laughs> and I said, wouldn't it be funny if... Kevin's like oiling these things down to put them away. And he sees, and so Lawrence Kasdan thought that was a great idea. And so it's in the movie, but God. they used my hands because <laughs> it goes from there to showing some dough stuff. But Kevin Klein had, had hairier hands, or I had hairier hands than him or something. I had to shave my hands, I remember, <laughs> and, and had the makeup people <laughs> use, uh, make my hands look like his. And so that's my hands in the movie. And they used my idea for that. And then it was just a really cool experience, you know, and to watch so many different people. Um, like I said, Joan Plowright and, and Keanu and William Hurt and all those folks. It's just an incredible experience in six weeks, you know, of just being together. And that kind of thing doesn't happen that much anymore. Where you go on location, you become like family. Mm -hmm. And then you come home and everybody breaks up and you never see each other again, you know? Right. right. Wow. That's amazing. Well, somewhere where you were not in the background is one life to live, which was your first overall. So you kind of hit the ground running there. So what do you remember about the early years or, or the early days of playing Jake? One of the most frightening things you could ever experience. I mean, without getting physically hurt or dying <laughs> uh, is to get up on stage with actors who've been doing this a long time and a lot of, you know, New York actors. Um, and I, I haven't been as frightened until I just did Bold and Beautiful again recently. <laughs> because it's like playing Little League, or, or not Little League, but playing um, just local football uh, and not even high school level. And all of a sudden then going to the pros. You know, you're doing 20, 30, 40, 70 pages a day. Some people, I, I just was talking to Allie Bean the other day, and she said she had 51 pages on General Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the business. And, you know, when you're just in acting class, and you're doing a couple pages in a scene, and all of a sudden you get there, and you've got 20 pages the next day. I was so scared. And I was working, you know, closely with Jessica Tuck who, first of all, is a brilliant person. She's a brilliant woman. She's a Yale graduate. She was going to be an attorney. And then she said, no, I want to be an actress. And so I'm working with her. And she's already been doing the show for like three years. And I have a lot of scenes with her and just couldn't keep up. And it's tough. I mean, these guys will eat you up and spit you out unless you get it. And that's why actors have like a 13-week contract. And at the end of 13 weeks, if you're not doing well, see ya. Even if you're signed for a year, they can they can shoot you out every 13 weeks. And I remember at one point going, you know what? I think I'd rather just go back to making pizzas in a restaurant because this is way too scary. And every day I'm just sweating bullets and I'm up all night long and, you know, just doing this thing. And I know sooner finish, I have to start again. 
And one day, you know, it just kind of snapped. And I was like, I can't give up. I can't quit. I, I, I don't want to leave. You know, I want to stay here. This is this is scary, but it's what I want. And that's how life is sometimes, you know, you, you have to really embrace the things you're frightened of. And when I made that little click in my head, things started to change. And I started paying attention to everyone and learning and learning from Jessica Tuck. And then they brought in Jessica and I were not getting along, but we were doing very well in the ratings, I think. You know, they wanted to make us the next Luke and Laura, but we just not, we're not getting along. And um, they brought in Brian Tarantina to play my old friend to kind of smooth out the edges between the two of us. And, and uh, this third wheel came into the, into the process and Brian was a New York actor and uh, very different from me. <laughs> and Jessica loved him right away, you know? <laughs> Everybody loved Brian because he was like a New York actor who grew up in Hell's Kitchen, which is where I lived. And um, he and I became very good friends, just like we played best friends in on the show. We became best friends in real life. He literally lived around the corner from me in Hell's Kitchen. I was scared to live in Hell's Kitchen, you know? Um, and he was like, don't worry, I'll, I'll take you around and introduce you to people. And then we just became like, it was great. I could walk through the neighborhood, Brian, hey, Jake, hey, blah, blah, blah. You know, they'd yell at us. And <laughs> all the people who are awake when I get off of work were asleep during the day and they'd wake up and watch the soaps. A lot of them were drug dealers and prostitutes and <laughs> ne'er-do-wells of all sorts who lived in Hell's Kitchen. But thankfully for Brian, he smoothed out the, the rough spots between Jessica and I and introduced me to my neighborhood. And uh, I loved him ever since. He was such a great friend. That's we so awesome. Away a couple of years ago. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, so uh, you made such a splash as Jake that among the things that happened, you know, in the very kind of compressed amount of time that you were actually on that show is that local Chicago boy Joe Lando was brought to Chicago to appear on the Oprah Winfrey show that must have been like a big deal for your family as well as for yourself oh yeah again it was like I, I had to pinch myself all the time because it started happening so quickly when first when I got on the soap uh and decided I didn't want to quit once I got that through my head um I saw that soap opera digest magazine you know everywhere you go in the studio everywhere I'd go in every grocery store mini mark there would be soap opera digest and I said to myself I go I want within a year be on the cover of that magazine I was on the cover of that magazine within a few months, you know, like five months or so, and then multiple times. But um, yeah, I, uh, sorry, I lost track just then. Um, oh, I asked about being on Oprah, but. Oh, oh, oh sorry. Yeah. So we'll take Soap Digest. Exactly. We'll take your Soap Digest goals. Well, I know that, that, that was a big deal. You know what I mean? I, that's what I remember right now. That's why I was excited to do this because I can remember the day that I just told myself, I want to be on your magazine cover. And then the next big thing was I get this call to be on, on the Oprah show, which I couldn't even believe. And, and I didn't, I told my parents, you know, my immediate family, but I did not tell my friends because I was frightened, you know, what they'll do. <laughs> and um, <laughs> sure enough, they heard about it because I'm broadcasting all over Chicago, right? So I couldn't keep it a secret. And I expected just to have my mom, my dad, my sister, and my nephew 
at the studio. And when I get in there, like about half a dozen more of my people I grew up with are there. And then Oprah goes out in the audience and starts talking to people. I ended up dominating like most of the show by accident because my friends were there. And they started talking about me running around as a kid streaking and doing all these stories. We're just fedding one person after another. Fan mail, you know, the Oprah effect they spoke of back then. My fan mail went from, you know, a couple hundred letters just to bushels. And then I was on the Oprah show again, you know, and just things. It was the Oprah effect. I mean, Oprah had a big part in the second part of my career, you know, launching off from the soap. Um, yeah, it was great. And again, it was one of those surreal moments. How's this happening to this kid? Um, but I was very grateful. And Oprah, thank, thank you, Oprah. <laughs> it's so funny one time i'm walking down the street i look in the restaurant there's oprah after the emmys in there eating i'm walking home in my tuxedo from the show to my apartment and i went in and i said hey oprah how are you doing Come on, sat down and had dinner with oprah and um and her friend what's her name um Gail? Gail. yeah and and the man who was uh, the owner of king world king uh forget his name but anyway I had this incredible dinner with Oprah and Gail and her entourage <laughs> just because I was walking home and having to look in the window. Um, Oprah, thank you again. Well, and Joe, thank you for the proper digest. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this for me is a conversation, you know, some decades in the making. And I've had the opportunity to confront Jessica, talk about this. But now it is your turn to face the music because in my entire life, I don't think I have ever cried as hard as when Megan died in Jake's arms. I got hives from the tears. Hives. You broke little Mara down. <laughs> um, so that was, you know- How old really, were you? Uh, I was uh, 14 turning 15. Oh, right wow. in that, Yeah, in that moment. And how very dare you. I'm um, sorry. I, I thought of it as I asked. I was like, Oh no, no, no. Oh, I'm not sensitive about my age at all. I meant how very dare you do that to my tear ducts. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, but this was, you know, uh, Jessica left, you left and, and they killed her off in tragic soap opera fashion. What do you remember? I think you guys even shot that on a, like a Saturday, if memory serves, what do you, what stands out to you about bringing that story to its bitter end. It was uh, it was a lot of emotions. I mean, I I wanted to leave the soap when Jessica was leaving because I felt like I had enough and I and I wanted to not get too entrenched where, you know, you get stuck there and you can't leave because you get so at home with it. And mm -hmm. you and, and they always are like, why don't you get an apartment? You can buy yourself an apartment here. I mean, if I buy myself an apartment here, then I'm gonna then stay here and I want to move on to this is like supposed to be a stepping stone kind of. Um and Jessica was slated to leave and I I wanted to go with her. And she had already put in an extra year and I was going to leave I think a year early um if she did. And so we worked it out and they came up with the storyline and um I remember 72 pages on a Saturday. A Saturday, We had broken it down during the week. Um, every day we'd do our regular scenes and she'd do her regular scenes. And then we'd take like, I don't know, 10 pages of that Saturday. And then the following day, take another 10 pages until we got up to that like 72 page count. And I don't think we ever went up once that day. It was so real. I, I can cry right now just thinking about it because I remember it was just real for me and it was real for her. Yeah, it was something, you know, and you very rarely get that as an actor. I mean, I personally that it still affects me because I remember how Jake felt 
I remember how real it was to me. And uh, yeah, it was a great moment. I guess it was 30 years just recently. You know, we just yeah, had I mean, the 30 year celebration. People still talk about it. So obviously, you know, it left quite a mark that three decades. Yeah, I owe that to Jessica. Sense. You know, I really owe that to Jessica and the opportunity to uh, to play her, uh, her husband and her boyfriend and- uh, And her tree planter. Oh yeah, the tree. <laughs> Don't forget the tree. Yeah. yeah. Um, I appreciate everybody who loved that scene. And it was a lot of hard work. And it was really, you know, one of my my best moments as an actor. And, uh, you know, a lot of people came up to me that day and were just like, oh, you did a good job. And they were so surprised, you know, and I was like, oh, well, I I was hoping for that. You know, that's what I was going for the whole time. The whole time I've been here, I've been trying to do a good job, you know? <laughs> Um, now, when you left One Life, you returned to L.A. and very quickly booked a show I was a huge fan of, uh, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, or as it was originally called, Medicine Woman. So tell us the story of landing that job. Well, um, Paul Rausch, the great Paul Rausch who produced One Life to Live, left the show. When that show, when he left, that's when they they let go of me. Um, I wasn't supposed to end quite the way I did, but for some reason, they they more or less fired me. Um, they asked me not to say anything about my leaving when Jessica was going to leave. And, um, and so I didn't say anything. I was on like good morning America or something at yeah, GMA. And the moment I crossed the street after finishing the good morning America interview and got to the studio across the street where our dressing rooms were, my uh, agent called and said, they've just, you know, canceled your contract. I was like, what? They didn't realize they still owed me some shows, which is my way of getting back at them was great. But <laughs> I, I was really, again, hurt, blood hurt by the whole thing. But that's, you know, that's just business. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And um, so I, I went back to L.A., and started my life here, bought a truck, a little pickup truck with the money that they owed me from the shows that, you know, was like extra and um, started just going to class and doing my thing again. And all of a sudden I get this call from my agent saying, ABC wants you back. The new producer, Linda Gottlieb, she asked me to come back. So I fly back to New York to have a meeting with her. I got to this restaurant, which is up on the Upper East Side. I don't remember where it was, but I got there early so that I'd be comfortable in the room, like half an hour early. She showed up like five minutes after me doing the same thing, you know? <laughs> and so we both had a couple martinis together. And before it's all done, I'm agreed to come back to, to One Life to finish up the story uh, of after Jessica died and she was an angel and stuff. And so while I was doing that, 
CBS, CBS came to me at the same time and said, we have this pilot development deal we'd like to offer you. And it's a three deal. You know, they th give you three options. And if you don't like any of them, you have to give back the money, you know, and like, who's going to go, oh, I don't want to do any of these. I'm going to give you back the money. And the first thing they sent me, though, was Dr. Quinn. Now, here's Joe. Either I want to be James Bond in a movie someday, or I want to be a mountain man like uh, Robert Redford and Jeremiah Johnson. I just wanted to be a mountain man. And um, I think I had a better chance of that than being James Bond. And so I read the script. I'm like, this is perfect. This is the first script they send me. It's a Western. I want to do this. But nobody's making Westerns. I didn't realize out of the three, I picked the one who had least chance of making it. And a woman <laughs> doctor, a woman lead to the show. Um, so I picked that one. And I came back and I waited. And I went up and back to New York, finishing up my storyline. And then they were like, oh, well, we're having a hard time finding Dr. Quinn. It was Mel Harris. It was... Um, Blair Brown, it was a Jane Alexander, it was this and that, and a bunch of other people. And then the director calls me one day in New York and says, we found Dr. Quinn, you got to come back. And I was like, okay, who is it? I'm not going to tell you. Jeremy Kagan is a great man, great director. He directed the pilot. I was like, come on, Jeremy. Tell me. No, no, you got to come in. got to come back. <laughs> so I came back and I went to the set a couple of days later up in Pasadena because they had started filming. I had to go for a wardrobe fitting and stuff and to meet who Dr. Quinn was going to be. And so they walk me out to the set and there's this woman in a period costume coughing really badly and I can't really see her face. And she stops coughing. She looks up. It's freaking Jane Seymour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from somewhere in time. But I'm like, oh, another one of those moments like, oh, my God, can't believe this is happening to me. So we sat down and talked for a little bit. And I was nervous as hell, I remember. But I pulled it off and, and a few days later started Dr. Quinn. And uh, it just took off like a rocket, man, you know, <laughs> couldn't have been a better. Any of those other people would have been fantastic, but nobody would have been Jane Seymour and nobody could have pushed the show and, and, and done all that groundwork that she did. She was fabulous. Again, I jumped on the coattails <laughs> of a really popular actress and again, knew what I was, what was happening to me and appreciated every second of it. Learned everything I could again from the actress, from the set, being on, you know, just like always. Um, and yeah, nobody, nobody believed in that show except us. You know, we were making it out in Agora Hills, way far away from Television City in Hollywood. So the the suits weren't out there going, oh, we want this and we want that and screwing things up. It was it was Beth Sullivan's creative idea, her brilliance, a great group of actors, you know, and um just this opening in time that was just perfect for us to fit into. And it just worked out incredibly. And I remember thinking the show was going to be a hit, but starting to hear, you know, no one has a Western now and blah, 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 but Dances with the Wolves have been popular. So maybe, and uh, the show premiered on January 1st. And I remember the night before celebrating that it was going to be on in, in Phoenix with my friends and um, had a nice champagne party, blah, blah, blah. And then the next morning, got up early and left because I didn't want to be near a phone or anything because I was worried it wasn't going to be the hit I thought it would be. And um, the next day was January 2nd. We were in the mountains coming back from L.A. And I decided, let's go up to a cabin. I was with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. So let's just go up to a cabin where there's no phones or anything. And I, I'm just scared. I don't want to hear anything about this. So we went and stayed in this cabin. And it was very snowy outside. And we're sitting there looking at the fire. And my wife said, you know, go make a phone. Go, go there's a there's a pay phone down the street. Go call and stop this nonsense. <laughs> so I went down and I just remember crying in the phone booth 
because it was this huge hit. It like it, it tied the sugar bowl. You know, it had 20 something million people watching it. And everybody at CBS is going, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> and uh, and it was just they ordered six shows then right away. Um, one of the guys who's in charge of the statistics and everything on, you know, con you know, conveying the message of these statistics. His name was Poltrain, I think um, he he said, listen, I'll put my job on the line. If you guys don't pick the show up, you could fire me. I'm wrong. But and so they ordered six and then they ordered six more. And then they just kept, you know, and it kept going and going and going. And yeah, a hundred and I don't know, 80 something shows I think we did or close to 200. It's pretty incredible. It was such a mega hit. But Joe, like yes. person to person, really looking back, how many of the you know 20 plus million do you think we're watching for that hair, for your long lock? <laughs> oh, and that hair I had to fight for. I, I started it on the soap. Um when I first oh, started, I know. <laughs> when it came to even though when I first started uh, One Life, I said I want to grow my hair a little bit longer, and they're like, "We don't like long hair." I'm like, "Well, this is what I want to be." I really had this very cavalier attitude, like take it or leave it. This is what I want to do. I didn't really people didn't push me around because I was so naive. I'm like, "This is the way I want to do it." I don't want to get my hair blown out and combed by a guy in the morning. I said, "I don't want a soap opera do," and they were like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like. <laughs> This is what I brush my ha my hair with. I still do to this day, my fingers, you know? And so that's why Jake looked like that. And then I started growing it out when I knew I had the Dr. Quinn thing. That's why I had that mullet, the famous mullet. And uh, yeah, I don't know how many people were tuning in to see that hair, but it followed me for a long time. And it was a bone of contention sometimes with the network. You know, sometimes they're like, his hair is too long for a CBS show. And I was like, it's getting longer, you know? <laughs> We don't want him with a beard. Well, this week, yes, Sully has a beard. Again, <laughs> with that naive attitude of, they can fire you, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, and one time, they finally put the screws to me and said, we want to cut his hair. And so they cut it in like four inches off the back. And, and I was really upset. It was like Samson. You know, they took away my strength. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then they got letters. And then they were like, you know what? We like his hair long. Right. So and and it helped because I was getting, you know, tens of thousands of letters a week. And when the hair went, they they got upset. And so they told the network and the network was then fine with it. And then I just kind of grew it all one length eventually, which I was trying to do. But yeah. And then all those years when they tried to get a job during hiatus and Dr. Quinn, you go into room, they'd be like, you know, we'd love to have you for the part. But that hair, it's just so sully and Dr. Quinn, we can't hire you because of your hair. You know, and I did something on a show called Alien, uh, where I had a whole headpiece on um, <laughs> Alienation. It was a it was a show on about how aliens had come living in the world. Now where they're working with us, and a lot of the main characters had these big bald heads. I have a picture I could have showed you, but anyway, that was one of the few jobs I could get because that hid my hair. You know, <laughs> and then um, and then when I did finish Doctor Quinn and I cut my hair off, I went in same people. Well, where's your hair? I'm like, you wouldn't hire me when I had it. Now you won't hire me when I don't have it. I, I don't know what to do, guys. Um, so I floundered for a while there. And then I found Higher Ground, which was the show that I did up in Canada for a year. And uh, really put my heart and soul into that. And I, I believe it's one of the best things I've been on. Um, unfortunately, it only lasted a season. But out of that show came A.J. Cook, Criminal Minds. A guy named Hayden Christensen, who got a little gig playing Darth Vader. 
Um, I remember the day that he called me because um, I was one of the producers on the show and, and I was he was working the same day I was working and they, they wanted him to come down to um, to California to audition for this part. But he couldn't tell me what it was for. And I said, well, if you're asking me to switch that day or if you can have off, it must be a big deal. So for sure, let's let's do it. You go. And Hayden went and did this audition. Then he came back and um, a couple, like a week or so later, he had to ask me for another day off. So he called me and said, do you mind? And I said, oh, it's getting close. I can't wait to find out what this is. Sure, go down. He goes down and comes back and it calls me on a Sunday. I remember going downstairs to my office, my house in Vancouver. And we're just chit-chatting. I go, okay, wait, did you get the part? He goes, yeah. I go, what is it? And I'm thinking it's going to be the new Indiana Jones or something. I don't know. Um, he goes, I'm going to play uh, Darth Vader in the next three Star Wars movies. Oh. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? That's and, yeah. And, you know, we get together now. It, it, 20 some years had passed and we just started riding bikes again together. And uh, the new resurgence of him, too, in his career with all the new uh, Star Wars things that are happening. So, yeah, it's been really neat. And that show really birthed a lot of actors' careers. Megan Ory, um, there's just... Everybody, almost everybody on that show took off from there. And then I went right. into kind of a little hiatus for a while. And because uh, I was really upset when the show didn't make it, but it was because the, the network had been sold. So it had nothing to do with the show or me, but I did take it again personally and uh, and came back to America, sold my house up in, in uh, Canada and came back here and just kind of licked my wounds for a little while, waited for the next thing to happen. Well, you and Jane did reconnect for a Christmas spark last year. What was that like to work together again? Fabulous. And a, and a pain in the butt, just like two people <laughs> getting together who are married, you know, and then divorced. <laughs> There's a reason why we got a divorce, you know, <laughs> but we, uh, we're really good friends and we've had our ups and downs to say the least. Um, but it's been 30, 30 years, I guess. Yeah. Um, and we're great friends and working together was really kind of easy. I mean, I would think if Jessica and Tuck and I got together, we could we could knock it out of the ballpark too, because there's that chemistry. And that's something that I found with Jessica. And that was the first time I realized I had it with Brian Tarantino, you know. Um, and again with Jane, you know, it was like lightning in a bottle and working with her again, it's the same deal, you know, and we we bicker. You know, before the say they say action. I'm like, I want to wear the glasses. No, you don't want to wear it. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> but it was a great time, and the audience loved it. And I remember I went over to her house on the weekend, and she was telling me the, the list of things she does. You know, her her week is busier than your year and my year put together. <laughs> And she rattled off all this stuff and she mentioned a Lifetime movie and she said, it's a really good script. You should read it. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, send it to me. I do that a lot with her. Yeah, send it to me. And uh, she sent it to me and I actually read it. And I'm like, this is good. I like this. This is whoever's going to do this with you is going to have fun. I told her. I mean, I said, kind of jealous. You know, I wish I could do it. But the character in the original script could sing and dance and, and do all the stuff. And, and he was playing Santa Claus at one point. And, and she was like, yeah, uh, too bad. You can't play father Christmas. And she doesn't remember saying that to me, but I was like, father Christmas. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I could do this thing, but I know I can't dance and sing like they want in the, in the script. So I just let it go. And like a week or two went by and my manager called and said, Hey, they want you to be in this movie with Jane. You're, they're, they're the only person they've gotten a hold of so far for this. And do you want to do it? 
And I said, let me think about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love Vancouver. It's not cold and rainy there yet. So let's go. And we did. And it was great. I was up there for a month and we had loads of fun. The weather was beautiful. The crew was fantastic. And uh, I love the the director, everybody. It just was really a great time. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, I had pretty much decided to kind of retire. You know, I didn't want to act anymore. Um, it was really difficult. And and having had a lot of the success and all this busyness for 12 years, I really worked like crazy. And then for it to dry up and you start turning gray and, you know, you go from being the quarterback to just being the bench warmer. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to look for something else to do with my life and really step back. And then a year ago, right now, I did a movie called Night Train, which comes out this week uh, with a friend of mine, Shane Stanley. And uh, and I had a character in that movie that I, again, found something one day on the set, which lit that spark up again, you know? And prior to that, I was only doing the movie because it was my friends. You know, I really didn't, uh, I was like, got to go do this, Joe, you know, talking to yourself, got to get, got to get off the bench and start trying to do something again. And so I did, I went and did this movie and I had a real connection with the character and had a great time shooting it. Cause again, it's working with friends. And that led to me being able to say, yes, I want to do this thing with Jane too. Cause I, I like the spark they talked about in that movie. I had a spark that lit up inside of me again for acting. It was that experience on Night Train, the movie that comes out this week, that also coincides with like Bold and the Beautiful going on and Christmas Spark just happening. All these things are slowly sucking me back in, you know, making me want to work. I don't care that I'm an old man now. I don't care that, you know, I still feel like Sully on Dr. Quinn or Jake until I see myself in the mirror like, oh. That's a different guy, but that no, guy can stop it. You look fabulous. You really do. Absolutely. Just, you know, it's just it's different. It's just time. And yeah. and yeah. you know, we're actors. We have a certain amount of ego that goes with it yeah. at the same time. I look at the great actors and and uh male actors and female actors, and you know, they they realize um you're not the same person, but you have the same love for what you did. And, and I'm just finding it again and and really I'm really happy with it, you know. And well, I'm very happy to be fortunate to be sitting here talking to you ladies and, and not just not just letting time go by. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Well, we have to talk Bold and the Beautiful, but okay. your last time on daytime prior to when you first were on B&B a few years back was uh, just something I would love to get your perspective on, which was the summer of 93. You were on hiatus from Dr. Quinn. Yeah. And despite your long hair, they said, come play Macaulay. On guiding light just for the summer yeah. uh, and it was sort of you know cbs's attempt i would imagine to capitalize on your great popularity on nighttime yeah, they wanted to cross promote the soap and the show bring the, the daytime audience to nighttime and nighttime to daytime right right you know, that was their idea yeah so what was your experience of doing that show well coincidentally i heard through the grapevine my agent had that they offered it to another cbs employee at the time burt reynolds who had a show called evening shade coming back yeah so they offered it to burt reynolds to do this thing and um i don't think it was gonna be the same character um but anyway so jill farron phelps wonderful woman um wonderful producer had me come and do that show and because I had known that Burt Reynolds was going to be there, he turned it down right away coldly, but he left this big piece of cake on the table. And I knew my agent knew the size of that cake, that how much it was going to pay. 
And so she asked for that amount and they said, no, <laughs> you know, that's Burt Reynolds, but we'll give him this much, which at the time, unbeknownst to anybody else, would have made me besides um, Susan Lucci was the highest paid soap actor at the time. But I came in and somehow your magazine got a hold of the information that what I was getting paid. So I walked into a room <laughs> of actors who weren't very happy with me. <laughs> Here's a daytime guy who goes to nighttime. Now I'm coming back to daytime and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I've been here for a while. And I understood where they were coming from. That's why I wanted to keep it a secret. And when I got there, it was rough. When they showed me my dressing room, I thought, okay, I understand. They literally brought me to a broom closet where they'd taken one of those classic, you know, table mirrors with the round lights around it. They stuck one of those in the broom closet. There was still the mop bucket with a mop in it a folding chair, garbage can, a light that you go <laughs> turn on and the table. And, and they're like, there's your dressing room. And I'm like, oh, great. No windows. It's a, it's a closet. It's a broom closet. And they stuck me in there. And I just, I ate that, you know, just like I loved it. Mm -mm -mm. And <laughs> did my job. And every day I was also using this because they had me, if I wasn't in the studio working, shooting a scene, I was out doing publicity for both uh, Dr. Quinn and Guiding Light. And so I was really using this as like, again, I thought a training ground for myself. If my career goes on and I do other things like films and you have to do the big tour, this is what it's like, you know? And so I was making myself do all these things that are kind of difficult, but getting out there and, um, and learning more about doing publicity and how to handle the shows one after another. And so I was doing that and just really working my tail off to be the best I could. And at the same time, very appreciative of being there and the experience. And I think slowly people turned around because I know when I left, they had a party for me. There was no reason for it. One I was the there. I feel like it was in a, I feel like it was in a restaurant. There was a going away party for you. He was at the party. That's what I that's, was there. Oh, you were there? <laughs> oh yeah. I remember it was kind of a big deal, it right? Was huge. I was going to say and this beautiful around. gold Tiffany clock, which I have yeah. in my office. Yeah. And I was so touched. I mean, there was a cake and, um, and, one of the other actors that shared his dressing room with me, he's like, that's not right. Come on in here. And so anyway, uh, it's amazing that you were there. That's cool. And I was very touched. And um, and unfortunately, it didn't do for CBS, I think, what they wanted it to do, you know, bring more people to that show, vice versa. You couldn't tell with Dr. Quinn because the audience just was growing anyway on its own organically. Um, but I don't think I boosted the ratings tremendously for, for um, Guiding Light. At least um, that's what some mean producer told me at one point. <laughs> you, get, you get so many kicks in this business, but you have to realize where they come from. And once you get wise enough, you just deal with it. But a lot of times it's very personal. You know, you're like, oh, yeah. And you didn't do a great job in that thing, by the way. They overpaid you. Oh. You know, that was a producer told me. And um, I was like, OK, well, you know, the check's cleared. What can I say? <laughs> it was their idea, <laughs> not mine. Yeah. So but anyway, wonderful people at Guiding Light. Again, soap actors can be hard to break through to. But again, they're all they're all actors and we're all, you know, just people trying our best. And my experience at Bold and Beautiful is, is the same. 25 years later that you wound up now at Bold and Beautiful. So what was it like in 2018 when you got when you were contacted to be on that show? Well, first, I remember saying, I, I don't I don't want to do it. I, I'm, I'm too scared. And then again, you know, I take a moment. That's what it says in my head. And I think, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. I got to go. You know, let's go do it. And I hadn't worked at that pace. Plus, 
Back in the days when I was doing either Guiding Light or One Life to Live, you did one show a day. Bold and beautiful. I don't know. They'll do as many as they possibly can. They do three, <laughs> five, six, you know? And so I um, I had to hit the ground running again. And it's a, it, like they told me when I first started One Life to Live, that memory thing is just a muscle, Joe. You know, it's like going to the gym, and it is. And you're talking about a guy who's been sitting around who's now going against triathletes. <laughs> you know, they can do everything. They can act. They can they can hit their marks. They can look beautiful. They're... And and so, again, I'm very scared in 2018. Um, but Allie Bean was on the show during that period of time. And Orson Bean came down on my first day. He came out of his house, yeah, to see me and uh, be a friend. And I loved him. Anyway, that's uh, that made it easier that him being there that day in Alley and um, and every again everybody there again was just you know really really nice and sweet and and uh, doing it again being on there just as terrified you know these years later even more so um, I had such a difficult time but they were like it's easy no problem just relax Joe I was like I'm so mad you know because <laughs> I had a week to prepare. And I had the stuff down, you know, I, I don't show up to work not prepared or, or or anything like that. But when I got there, you would have thought, what's wrong with this guy? Is it an aneurysm? You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. And what you have to usually do is as the judge, I have to kind of recap everything and judge lingo that was just said, you know, right. and, and when you shoot multiple shows back to back. The day after, the, you know, the second day will reflect on the first day's dialogue and almost copy it to a certain extent, but just change it a little bit. And then the third day does the same the second day, you know. And so you're almost saying the same thing, but using a few different phrases and you got to remember which are different. And I sat there and I watched everybody before me doing the same thing, being brilliant. And then came my turn and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. so in answer to your question, working on Bold and the Beautiful is terrifying for me. But again, as an actor, you it's that terrifying thing that's inside you that keeps you going. I guarantee you those people are terrified of screwing up and not to the level I am, but that's what keeps them going. And that's what makes them so good at what they do. People don't give soap opera actors the credit they deserve mm -hmm. and the, the, the lifting they do. Absolutely. You know, Jane talks about very often nine pages of dialogue on Dr. Quinn. I'm like, nine pages of dialogue? On your head, standing on your head, you can do it. <laughs> but... Anyway, sorry to get a little emotional there, but uh, yeah. Not, not at all. We understand and we yeah. adore Allie uh, as, as well. So yeah. And, and I went to the Christmas party at Bold and Beautiful with Allie. Uh, oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, having done it in, you know, in 2018, was it with a different level of um, openness when they yeah. contacted you about returning? Yes. So, I'm sorry. What was the first one? I'm just saying, having like, been through the experience in 2018 and survived it were yeah. you more uh willing to say yes right away when they contacted you about returning no i was a little apprehensive again scared but yeah i said yes right away but in my head i'm like oh my gosh and if they ask if i'm fortunate enough to be asked again i'll be scared but i'll say yes you know <laughs> no every time you see me on tv the is a little scared boy <laughs> standing there someplace going holy cow they're gonna figure me out and they're gonna fire me you know <laughs> I think most um, actors worry to worry about getting figured out and fired. You know? Yeah. But, well, um, you know, Brooke needs a new romantic interest. What if they wanted, you know, Judge McMullen to come in and permanently, would you be willing to do a more long-term stay at this point? Yeah, I, I think so. I believe so. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know how that would work out because Judge has a wife. <laughs> um, oh, we've never seen her, have we? That's true. She could have gone upstairs and disappeared. Correct. Yeah. He could have made her up. We don't know. Yeah, we used to always say um, on the show, you know, you might go upstairs. <laughs> you know, I'm one life to live. You might go upstairs because a few actors go upstairs and then they never come they down. Never come down. So, <laughs> yeah. So. It's funny how our minds work differently, Steph, because you were thinking Brooke needs a new love interest, and I was thinking Ridge needs a new love interest. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. So, you know, oh, like, that'd be funny. Do you get a kick out of the fact that, you know, you, you started on One Life in 1990, and yet in our world, the Soap Opera Digest world, our readers... It's like Joe Lando's a big name and there's still a lot of excitement to think, oh my gosh, he's going to be back on B&B. Do I get a kick out of that? I'm flattered. I'm I'm humbled. Uh, you know, I'm everything at the same time. I'm surprised as everybody else's, <laughs> but um, I'm very thankful. I mean, my fans have just been so, so great to me. And then I respect that. And I love them for it. And I, I think maybe part of the reason for their loyalty is that I'm honestly loyal to them. I'm, I, I am, I was Sully. I was Jake. You know, there's a big part of me that were those characters. It wasn't me just putting on makeup and becoming a totally different person. A lot of my heart goes into it. I, it's a lot of me usually, you know, I, 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 I find things that attach to my heart and, um, and go for it that way and seem to be just another kind of different version of me. Um, I'm no Daniel Day-Lewis who transforms his whole self and becomes a totally different person. I am a lot of those people to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I was a lot of Jake and, and truly Sully was basically my alter ego. You know, that's the guy I always wanted to be in real life um, and have a good heart and be a good person. And I think maybe my fans see that I'm not lying about it. You know, I've never tried to be a phony baloney or any of that kind of stuff. And so uh, I'm very thankful and I'm thankful to Oprah and Jessica Tuck and Brian Tarantino and Jane Seymour for all helping me with my career and, and Kevin Klein and all those folks who yeah. I watched and, and they didn't know I was watching. Um, thank you guys. And thank you audience and soap opera digest for helping me out in my, you know, my career. It's been, it's been fabulous and it's been quite, quite a, uh, quite a trip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, what a strange trip it's been i feel fortunate that we've gotten even a fraction of probably all of the amazing stories that you have and thank you so much for your time today and we certainly look forward to seeing judge mcmullen back on bold and beautiful but hope to see you more down the road thank you so much for having me here today and thank you so much for your time today ladies well thank you so much joe it was so great to talk to you and have a great day thank you all i appreciate it Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Joe Lando for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.